Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 1st, 2022. We escaped June. Uh, but we also did an injustice to June 2022, because back on June 23rd, there was a very, very important anniversary. The great um, English computer scientist uh, and many other things, uh, Alan Turing, who, of course, is no longer around, uh, celebrates or celebrated his 110th birthday. Um, Turing now, I think, is considered uh, amongst the most remarkable computer scientists in history, and he was recently voted the most iconic 20th century scientist. He's a man of much complexity intellectually, personally, sexually, and uh, a remarkable man, a heroic man. Uh, uh, as uh, we're reminded, he was nearly an Olympian. He invented Turing machines, which are essentially computers. And he's a man, of course, behind uh, the Enigma uh, plus, last year, he is now on the UK's 50-pound coins. I'm not sure. Uh, not 50-pound coins, 50-pound notes um, to celebrate uh, his contribution. Uh, the release date last year on his birthday coincided with what have been the computer pioneers uh, and wartime codebreakers' birthday. Most people still are familiar uh, with Turing because of uh, a remarkable biography, the uh, Alan Turing, The Enigma, by a, a distinguished British mathematician and writer, Andrew Hodges. Um, and I'm thrilled and really honored that Andrew is joining us from Oxford. Andrew, welcome. Um, Turing would have been 110 last week. Um, how's he aged, Andrew? You, you know more about this guy than anyone. He's on the, all these notes. He's in the movies. Of course, he's the the figure in the imitation games, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, was touring. He's um, he was honoured in Breaking the Code, 1986 play. You you kind of you made his name. L let me actually revise the question, Andrew. Had you not written the Enigma, do you think we would still be celebrating uh, uh, touring? Would he still be on those fifty pound notes? Oh, it's certainly not up to me. Uh, I mean, I was a, had a very interesting part in the story, but uh, what he did uh, in, in his short life between 1912 and 1954 would stand absolutely today just the same if, if it had been put together by other people rather than by me. But uh, yes, I did have a very exciting time finding out and putting together very disparate things in the 1970s when I was finding out about him. And that, that was indeed an, a marvellous experience. But uh, yes, he, he would have been known just as much today. Of course, he was always well known to mathematicians for the concept of the Turing machine. But of course, that's a very small part of the world. Not many people know anything about mathematics and mathematicians. But the computer, because that's now so universally, I mean, every cell phone, every laptop is embodies his idea of the universal machine. That would have, I mean, that would have made his name. It's the dominant technology of the emerging century. And he, he, no, no one would take that away from him. So, and again, I know this is a bit trite, um, 
especially for a mathematician like you, Andrew. But can, could we say that Turing invented the modern computer? Is that, or, or would that be a vulgarization? It is. It, that is that is oversimplifying because when the electronic digital computer was formulated in 1945, it really was the Hungarian-American mathematician John von Neumann who described the first detailed design and and set out the, the concepts of a machine that would do numerous tasks, not just one arithmetic type of task, and. But he was prefigured by Turing's work in 1936, which had this concept of the universal machine. And von Neumann certainly knew of uh, Turing's concepts. It may even be that Turing explained it to him uh, when they met before the war in 1938. We will never know exactly what happened. Uh, but the, uh, the whole... And Turing himself also developed a detailed electronic design for computer just a few months later. So he was also in at the start. He wasn't just a theoretician. He actually wanted to make his concept of the universal machine into something that was done in hard, uh, up-to-date, cutting-edge electronics in 1945. And indeed, he produced his design in March 1946. So from, from that distance, there's not sort of so much in it. Turing was also ahead, I think, in what he saw as the potential of a universal machine, which he was his concept, a machine which you would switch from one task to another in a, in a, in a flick of a switch, uh, as we do now on cell phones without even thinking about it. I mean, that's, that's the principle. And uh, he, he made a lot of that in his writing about the early computation work in 1946-47. But of course, in the end, uh, Turing's practical work didn't come to anything like as much. And it was in the British scene, it was more spread over a number of different uh, projects. Uh, so it didn't have quite the impetus that, uh, that von Neumann's group and their start had. Yeah, I want to get, obviously, to Turing's work during the Second World War. Uh, but we had, an, and I'm sure you're familiar with this book, uh, George Dyson's Turing's Cathedral um, on the show a few years ago, actually, when the show was on TechCrunch. I mean, we had a really interesting conversation um, what Dyson suggests about not Turing, but certainly von Neumann, is that, and I'm quoting George, and, I, and I'm sure you know Dyson, um, they made a deal with the devil in terms of the building of, of what Dyson calls this Turing machine. Is there some truth in that, Andrew? This well, idea I, I can't that they were. I, I think what we're getting at is that the, the emergence of the computer was. I mean, the funding for it and the whole emphasis for it was for practical purposes in 1945. And the American setting, it really was for the atomic bomb calculation. Right. In, in, and that's probably what we're, we're you know, and that's the genesis of it, really. Uh, in the British setting, it wasn't quite the same. Uh, it, the, the parallel thing was the code-breaking effort. It was, a, I mean, a terrific British state enterprise in which Turing was the leading scientific figure from the very beginning, in fact, before the war, as well as during the war. And that's what brought together electronic technology and the concept of algorithms. I mean, the concept of how you have many, many different algorithms all requiring implementation as efficiently as possible, some numerical, some non-numerical, some imitating human beings in doing, some doing better than human beings, as Turing was very keen on. And those all came together in Turing's mind. 
but it wasn't quite the same in Turing's case because it, the computer plan of 46 wasn't for a specific purpose, uh, such as the atomic bomb. In fact, it was indeed used for the British atomic bomb, uh, not so long afterwards, but that wasn't the rationale for it. The rationale of it in Turing's plan was actually very clear that you could do anything with it. It, include, it would include code breaking, but also include all the numerical work that people had done and also things that we now think as, as data processing and, and uh, uh, purely administrative things that people do all the time. I mean, he was very aware of that potential. I recently read alongside your book, um, Jana Levine's uh, A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. And what struck me both about your book and, Tur uh, and, and Levine's book is that Turing was the quintessential outsider. And in a way, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Ada Lovelace, of course, who invented a mid-19th century English, very unusual mathematician, as unusual as, as Turing. Do you think it required an outsider like Turing to invent something so revolutionary? I mean, even von Neumann, von Neumann was kind of an outsider, a Hungarian at Princeton. Yeah. What is it about being an outsider, Andrew, that enables such remarkable scientific mathematical originality? Yes, there's it, it, a sort of uh, dialogue here between outside and inside. I mean, uh, Ada Lovelace was an aristocrat. I mean, you can hardly call her, you know, a, a nobody. She was uh, right. very uh, well-connected in society indeed. And Alan Turing came from not an upper class, but what we call an upper middle class background. Actually, just the same as George Orwell's, if that's a parallel figure, who again was wrote like an outsider, but actually came from a very classy background. Uh, Turing wasn't someone who, I mean, he, he, he didn't have an easy time doing his own thing. But on the other hand, compared with most, you know, the great majority of people in the 20th century, he, he was pretty comfortably often well supported. I mean, if you take a broader view, uh, he was at home really in King's College, Cambridge, which is a very special environment. And one was actually particularly protective to him as a gay man, which is an important part of his story. So one can't sort of overdo the question of being a complete outsider. He was in the establishment, uh, if you like, and was able to draw on that. Nevertheless, it's true that what he did was it was very much his own thing and didn't ride on just doing the expected thing or the comfortable thing or the easy thing or the profitable thing at the time. He was very much driven by his own perception of what, uh, what needed to be done, what could be done, uh, what he could see. Uh, and that applies right through to both the, his pre-war work, uh, to his code-breaking work where he just innovated where there wasn't any it wasn't really any theory to go on. He created it. And the thing I've just described, which is the promulgation of the virtues of what we now take for granted, a digital computer that can load any software you like and do anything. The universal machine. Um, yeah. Now, where most people are watching this show and thinking about touring, they'll think of the imitation game, the movie based off your book. It, it, were you happy with that movie, Andrew? Did it? Do well, I think we better leave. I think we better leave that out of it as a. <laughs> You've as a, you've I'm answered a, that one then. Let um, me say, I'm, I'm no expert on art or literature and so forth, so uh, I think that's better left to the. Uh, 
What about the breaking code, the uh, the eighty six player? Are you happier about that one in terms of? Well, I had, I had, yeah, I did collaborate, uh, and uh, Hugh Whitemore consulted me a lot, and we we worked together on the script quite a lot. That was a stage play, pretty early in the sequence of things we've been talking about, because it was produced in London in nineteen eighty six and in New York in eighty seven, and featured uh, Derek Jacobi as a leading. Uh, leading actor in the in the title role, and that was actually that was a remarkable production, not least because that was going on at the height of the HIV crisis of the 1980s, and it was something featuring a gay man in the leading role, evoking hidden history questions about mind, artificial intelligence, which we haven't really talked about yet, but is an important part of of, of Turing's uh, uh, sort of prophetic work. Uh, so that was that was quite a notable event. It's also been done as a television play in in the nineties, and some people may may have seen that. Yeah. There's so much here, Andrew. Let, let's let's talk then about AI. Um, uh, explain how Turing's pioneering work in computer science is so bound up in AI. Of course, one of his major legacies is still this idea of the Turing test, which I'm not sure. I think um, Google now is trying to uh, replace this as they're trying to replace everything with 200 tasks to replace the, the Turing test. But it, it's an interesting idea, the Turing test. And how is it bound up with his pioneering work in AI? Right. So I think one thing to say is that Turing started in the 1930s thinking about what it is that a person does when carrying out a procedure of some kind. I mean, uh, he was thinking about the human mind right from the start. And in fact, that goes back earlier in his thought into, into his youth. Oh, we, we can see that. He wasn't someone who was just captivated by machines and wanted to build bigger and better machines. His, his work as a mathematician took off from thinking about what people do and trying to find a mathematical formulation of that, which he did. It's called computability. Uh, so it, it always had the human mind in his mind. Uh, that's the basis of it. And it's on that basis that he formulated the concept of an algorithm, as we now say. And that, uh, that attracted a lot of attention within the very small world of mathematical logic and philosophy in the 1930s. Uh, it was quite different, really. The whole atmosphere was different, of course, after the Second World War. And Turing was not alone. I mean, basically all the pioneers of that period, John von Neumann and Claude Shannon, the founder of information theory. Uh, and, and Kurt Gödel. Uh, I don't think Gödel so much, but I think, uh, but uh, other people who were famous in what became the cybernetic movement, uh, yeah. Robert Wiener, of, uh, who published an amazingly unreadable but best-selling book called Cybernetics in 1948. I mean, it was all they, everyone was talking about this possibility of how much machines how much automation would go in replacing human faculties. So Turing wasn't, wasn't alone. In fact, what's striking now is that many of the questions which come up about artificial intelligence now were being rehearsed in the public sphere right back at the beginning. I mean, before computers are actually built in 1946-47. Uh, and uh, to give an example, uh, Alan Turing was taken on at the British government's main a civilian scientific establishment, the National Physical Laboratory in 1945, uh, to design and build uh, this 
first computer. The director of the of the establishment was was very defensive about the idea that uh, that was being talked about in the press of electronic brains and magic uh, uh, automating all human faculties and so on, which had sort of got into the newspapers already, and said, "Oh no, it will only it will only take over the lower forms of thought and not the not the high ranking things that we people do and so on." But Turing's view was very different from that. He was very interested in overtaking things that really, I mean, top people had been doing in, in, in code breaking and mathematics, and he was always fascinated by that. So that was all going, that argument was going in public right at the beginning, before any computer was built. I mean, the first one you can say was actually demonstrating the principle of storing, loading and storing and implementing a program was in the middle of 1948. And didn't really get going until 1951. But by that time, Turing had published the paper that you're referring to in 1950 in a philosophical journal um, about what well, it, it was called Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And it addresses this question of whether a machine that's doing what you might say look like clever things could actually be called intelligence. Oh, he, he, he was very keen to say that it wasn't just because it could do mathematical things very quickly or even play chess games quickly and so forth. That wasn't what you would count as real intelligence. He wanted to broaden it very greatly to include things that people do and you call intelligence. And his way of thinking was to do it by a comparison test that uh, if you couldn't, if you put a human and a computer against each other and you couldn't tell which was which because they were just text messaging uh would you be able to tell from the responses which was which uh that's the thing i think you're referring to by the imitation game and incidentally the imitation game in turing's writing the whole point is a joke i mean it's full of humor uh turing was full of full of humor and uh that itself is it was a, a bit of a laugh and it's, if you look at the philosophical journal and it was written in uh, it's completely different from all the other very, very po-faced papers. I mean, Turing, that's for a purpose. Turing was very aware that he wanted to think about what actual human life, I mean, he, that he knew what being human was, not just that he was an expert on machines, you see. So there's, there are jokes in it, and it has the picture of the computer making jokes and teasing and so forth, which uh, is to be put on the same comparison level with what human beings do. Now, Turing had very specific details about how this test might work. And I don't think those should be taken too seriously. I mean, exact, I mean so if people want to replace those by lots of other comparisons, that doesn't, doesn't really make much difference. What he did want to get away from, I think, was the kind of argument that was very current then and still, still current now, that of course machines can't think. Machines are machines and machines don't think. Human beings are human beings and they do think. that they can't. You, there's no way that, that that's just intrinsic. That's just the way things are. You can't, it's, it's silly to talk about one doing the other. Uh, he wanted to say, no, if intelligence, if you mean anything at all by this, it should be susceptible of some practical observation. And so that, that's the point of the test. I would say that his paper is not all about that testing business. It's much more, well, first of all, about the, the underlying concepts of, of computing, the computability definition that he'd given, the concept of algorithms, the concepts of the universal machine, 
everything that we now call digital. The world of the digital is what he brings out in this paper. Uh, it's not the same as the world of physics. He wanted to say the world of the digital is the one in which the concept of intelligence naturally lives. It's to do with, 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 with inputs and outputs and symbols and, and manipulation and so forth, and that should live in that sphere. That's, that can be, that can be criticised, that view, but that's the kind of view he put across. He also put constructive ideas for how to do artificial intelligence, and there are two kinds, really. There are top-down, where you do advanced programming and you plan things in advance for what a machine can, can do. And then what was more far-sighted, I think, is the concept of machine learning by experience. He talked a lot about the parallel with how, uh, how human beings learn in childhood by experience, how, how brains somehow develop this stuff from, from, from very little into, into uh, what we call intelligence. So that concept of machine learning, of course, is now a very, very big one. And uh, that's... Yeah, we, uh, we actually dealt with it yesterday with Margaret Mitchell, an ex-Google AI person. We talked about whether big tech can be reformed to make it more ethically responsible. I'm sure Alan Turing would have some strong opinions on that if he was around. What about the issue of language, Andrew? How did Turing think of language? Was it the sort of the front window of our brains in terms of, because I always understood, and maybe again, this is a bit of a vulgarization, the idea of the Turing test is one in which computers can talk so credibly that you can't tell the difference between computer talk and human talk. Was he interested in language philosophically? Uh, I, I wouldn't say he had a specific interest in language philosophically. He used language because that the sequence of symbols emanate going in and out of a computer is a, is a natural one uh, to consider. Uh, and of course, I mean, it's, it's, it's real life now. I and mean, people do, I mean, do judge and recognize and formulate pictures on the basis of texts. No, I mean, it's something that really goes on. And the kind of questions about is it real, is it not real are very... <laughs> Are very relevant now. Just Increasingly very, real, given. Yeah. So he, I think he was ahead in seeing the kind of cultural things that would come out of this world of the digital. But I think you put a very good question there about the role of language. And I, in my view, he didn't criticize the question of language enough. In my book, actually, I, I did put a critique of really just this point, and which brings in the ethical question that you raised, you say Turing would have had strong views about the ethical uses, the ethical application of AI. Well, it's not so clear because that type of question, that's informed by all sorts of considerations which are current now, but not really in the 1940s. I mean, in, I mean I, I, a very specific example of this, when that 50 pound banknote was introduced by Mark Carney, the uh, governor of the Bank of England then, uh, he was followed by another speaker who said, who talked about this question of, of ethics and in the application of AI and said, of course, Turing as a gay man would have, would have seen these things. Well, that, that range of concepts about minorities, about what's, you know, what's right to say and what's not right to say, what words you use and so forth, that wasn't really available in the same way in the 1940s. I mean, I think actually Turing would have, appreciated the things. I mean, he, the range of cultural references in his work shows that he was very alive to all of these questions, but you can't 
I was careful in writing the book not to put ideas back into the past that weren't really available. In fact, actually, the, the critique I used was actually drew on George Orwell's 1984, which is a very powerful uh, analysis of language and its application to how it constrains thought and how that thought in, terms, in turn um, makes human actions possible or impossible. And Turing certainly read that. And I think, I don't think he really explored that. It's, I mean, you can't do everything. Uh, I, th I think you put your finger on a question where we're now much more alive to the implications of talking about uh, the use of language, which uh, the point is language is an action, it isn't just data. Uh, words which come out of computer are making people do things. They may make uh, someone turn down a job application or, or all these other things that AI are being used for. They're not just, uh, they're not just symbols. They're symbols that are keyed into, into physical things that people do and feel in the real world. And I think most people now are much more aware of the questions about how AI is keyed into and impacts both, both input and output into the real world and how, how important that is. I wouldn't say that Turing in his paper, or indeed the criticism that went around it at the time, I, I don't think it was really keyed into that. Um, but other people, I mean, there are loads of people with views on these questions, so I've, I've just put a little little spoke for my own uh, my own thoughts about this. Andrew, you compared um, um, Turing and Orwell. Um, Orwell gets raised a lot, especially these days, about sexual politics, cultural politics, identity politics, and he gets thrown out and say, well, if Orwell was around now, he'd be shocked with the, mm -hmm. the rigid politics of identity. Of course, Turing is um, not only well known as being on the front of the 50 pound coin, uh, but um, he is also, and, 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 and that was one of the achievements, I think, of your, uh, of your biography. He's also very well known as a gay man, not as a pioneer of gay rights you're much more i think of a, a a political figure in that sense do you think well two questions here firstly how much i use this word carefully currency you know maybe more than 50 pounds how much <laughs> currency should we give to Turing's sexuality in our age where everything seems to be defined around gender and sexuality um, and, and racial identity. Do you think perhaps if Turing reappeared now, he might be slightly uncomfortable with all these headlines about his sexual identity? Of course, it defined his life and tragically his death. But do you think we've overplayed it a bit or you even you overplayed it a bit in your book? Um, no, I don't actually. <laughs> no, I, he, he was up front. He was very definite about, uh, about it and he wasn't at all apologetic. And um, there are numerous... Uh, anecdotes about that. Uh, I mean, if, as an example, uh, there was, I mean, he made this uh, very, uh, you know, f well, you could say very foolish step, which got him into trouble in 1951. And he was arrested. This was in Manchester, right? In Manchester. And he was arrested on the first day of the glorious reign of our dear Queen Elizabeth, as a matter of fact. Yeah, who now has, uh, ironically <laughs> enough, pardoned him a bit late, right? Well, it wasn't really, of course, you know these things, it's not really the Queen that does right. it. Right, no, I understand. So, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, I just, uh, uh, 
but the point is when he he wanted uh, his, 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 his this um superior professor mathematician max newman who had been a bit of a father figure to him all the way along to be his character witness at a trial but his way of doing that was to announce the business of the arrest and the forthcoming trial to, to for all to hear in the university cafeteria. Uh, that's the exact, I mean, in the, and that was typical of the way he talked. That it was that, it, I mean, he was, there was a certain amount of bravado about this, but actually, and the whole thing really hurt him. I, I must have hurt him a great deal. But he, he wouldn't li like to give in to that at all, and gave the impression that it was just ridiculous and uh, and. Uh, uh, everyone, it was nothing to be ashamed of at all. That was a pretty unusual uh, stance to take in the 1950s. I mean, he really was up with those people who was just starting then uh, to speak out uh, for themselves as gay men and indeed lesbians too, and which uh, in the current, in the currents of the early 1950s, which is an important period because it's just when the both British and American governments tried to sort of crack down after the war and uh, tried to, uh, well, I mean, British prosecutions just zoomed upwards and they were in the, covered in the press in a big way for the first time. Turing was caught right in the middle of that. But given that he was in that situation, he spoke up pretty clearly for himself and refused to be cowed by it. He abs absolutely insisted on continuing to explore his, what possibilities there were for him by going abroad in, uh, in 1952 and 53. Uh, you certainly shouldn't think that he was just sort of uh, crushed by this. Although, as I said, in fact, it was, it was in fact, it really was a very uh, hard blow indeed. But what about the, the second part of the question about defining him around his sexuality? Can we, can we make connections between his work and his sexual identity, or, or do you think of these things um, simply as coincidences and existing in parallel? Uh, well, I certainly don't make any big statement that he he was creative because he was gay or anything like that. I don't think that's the right thing to say. There are plenty of people who are gay who are not the least bit creative, and there are plenty. I mean, and so on. That's not right. You know, I wouldn't be right to do that kind of thing at all. I think it does clearly feed into what you're saying about being an outsider. Uh, I think that's there is something in that that he he was never uh, completely within the establishment setup, and this would have been part of it. Although it has to be said against that that he was pretty safe within the King's College environment, uh, where in particular John Maynard Keynes, you see, was a very interesting uh, parallel figure, slightly older figure, who uh, who, who knew knew Turing and also. Uh, I mean, absolutely essentially a gay man until he managed a marriage when he was 40, something that I think Mme Turing didn't do. Uh, there's this outsider-insider thing going all, all the time because of that. But there is one other thing which is true, which is that his, uh, his, in his adolescence, I mean, his, his awakening to his gay identity certainly involved, uh, 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 it, it was bound up with this other boy at school who was actually in love with and then died suddenly. Yes. And we can see that's true. That's not made up. Uh, and what's more, his reaction to that 
had a component where, of course, it was a highly emotional, but it also had a scientific component. He started thinking about the nature of the mind, how it was compatible with the physics, whether quantum mechanics had got something to do with it, and that's a subject I think he would have come back to later on if he lived. Uh, and we can see that from his very this very direct writing. That his first researches and first thoughts had a connection with all of that. Uh, you can't you couldn't just pull them apart and do it. I certainly couldn't. I mean, it, the narrative doesn't take you there. You you can't say, oh, this was the work life, and he did this and wrote this paper and blah blah blah, and then another section. Oh, he had an emotional life, and this happened and this happened. They're, they're not. They're bound together. Uh, I wouldn't say that follows through all the way or anything like that, but there was this point of confluence, which is the very thing we've been talking about, which is the nature of the mind, how you can describe it, whether you can simulate it or reproduce it in another form, what is its physical basis. Uh, those things go very deep in his earliest work. They're still there, the question of what, what makes a human being alive and intelligent or whatever you call it uh, they 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 flow right through and I think his whole attitude to, to to living and sexuality as a part of that was all of a piece with that it wasn't it wasn't something a separate thing your your life for your your and, and your career parallels Turing's in, in some ways you're also very distinguished uh, mathematician, not King's College, but you're associated with Wadham College at um, at Oxford. Um, you're also uh, a prominent gay man. What did what drew you to, to writing this book? I mean, oh, it, it well, sticks out like a in terms of your career, uh, Andrew. Yeah. It sticks out not like a sore thumb because sore thumbs aren't particularly attractive. But it, 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 it's very different from everything else you've done in your life. What initially drew you to, to, to writing such a, a significant biography? I mean, it took a lot of time, a lot of effort, a massive investment. Uh, right. Well, I, I, I'm certainly nothing remotely like the Turing's distinction, but I will just say one thing about what I've done, which is to work with another great genius, uh, namely Roger Penrose, who mm. recently was co-winner of the Nobel Prize for work on black holes. And uh, that was what drew my graduate study. And uh, that began in, in 19... In, in yeah, you're a, you're, a, you're a twister. I am. A yes. twister theory, uh, man. You uh, <laughs> fundamental physics pioneered by Roger Penrose, at least according to Wikipedia. Yes. So that's an important part of my life. And there's a connection there, too, because Penrose's critique of Turing's artificial intelligence ideas is something we haven't touched on, but I think it's another extremely important critique, which I, unlike most AI people, take very seriously. Uh, and what is it that Penrose, what's his critique very simply? Well, that's the critique which has nothing to do with what we're talking about in terms of language or, or uh, ethics or anything, but just simply to do with the very basis of computability. And Penrose is, takes up an argument which Turing made uh, about uh, computability. Uh, you see, Turing discovered there are things you can define but can't compute. Let uh, us say infinite things that you can define, but nevertheless you can't, you can't actually compute. And there's a, always been an argument about this. And Turing said, well, that doesn't, 
that actually doesn't make any difference when we're thinking about machines and you know doing intelligent things. That that's we can we, we can forget about that. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but he he didn't give that great attention. Roger Penrose says, "Oh yes, we do. It is absolutely fundamental to the very nature of understanding whether you can see the truth of something. It's not just something that can be done by an algorithm. There must be something else. And in Penrose's theory, that is to do with quantum mechanics." Uh, I, I think that's something Turing would have taken a great interest in if he'd heard that argument, because it relates two of the arguments, apparently quite different arguments, that Turing considered in his 1950 paper and says, actually, they're two sides of the same thing. Very remarkable argument. Anyway, there's loads of stuff there, which uh, it, you know I can't begin to summarize. But there's an important connection for, for, me, for me there. Uh, but coming back to your question, how I got into this in the first place, uh, well, that's, I mean, I did detail that uh, in the author's notes of the book because they think it's part of the something and one the author should give so that readers can know where the authors come from. I first heard Turing's name, I think, when I was a student about 1969, when I was reading around about computers and AI as it stood then, not knowing what to do with, with uh, my future. And in fact, I didn't go into that area. I went into physics with Roger Penrose, but nevertheless, I did know something about it. And then in 1972, uh, I was involved in what was then the London Gay Liberation Front. Uh, and actually today is the 50th anniversary of the first London Gay Pride March. Another I'm great not, anniversary. I'm, I'm, not on that. I'm, I'm with you, but I'm, I'm with it in, in spirit. And uh, in that context, that was when I met people who'd known Alan Turing as, as their personal friends and had carried with them this story, which had never been published. And then it would have been in terms of how he was persecuted and essentially driven to his death uh, by, by the law as it, as it was then and by the medical treatment which he, which he under, and was, was, was given afterwards. That, uh, that's what I got though, not much detail. And then, so that was a very striking fact because not many people knew his name. Uh, but then in 1976, the BBC had a series of documentaries called The Secret War, of which the last was about this code-breaking operation at Bletchley Park. And uh, that brought his name into it. But it was only really because I had a bit of inside information from really from people Roger Penrose had known back in the 1950s that I could twig that actually Turing had been the most important scientific figure, the central figure in that, not just a figure who happened to be around. And I thought this was absolutely extraordinary. That these three aspects of his life, there was just one, one person. And of course, I didn't know there was much more. There's the question of the origin of the computer and the theory of artificial intelligence, or I mean, all, lots of other things I had to deal with too. But there was that confluence it was, and also the sense that there were two secret histories. There were two things that no one had talked about. There's the, the code-breaking work, which was only just coming out into public form in the mid-1970s. And while I was writing, a great deal was still hidden. Uh, and also, there's this concept, which I was familiar with from, from the pioneers of this area in the early 1970s, which is now much more understood and appreciated, which is a secret social history of an underclass, uh, which has never really got in, in, you know, in the public sphere. So I was very taken with the idea of bringing all these things together, 
which of course I could only do by meeting and interviewing as many people as I could who could convey those things uh, to me and then trying to put that together with a lot of um, a, a chronology and documents and so forth. And, I mean, that's what I did. It took a long time. Remarkable achievement. Um, as, as I said, Turing is considered now the most iconic 20th century scientist ahead of Marie Curie. And your book, um, Andrew, now is considered one of the top biographies. What did you learn about the art? It's not a science, the art of biography. It's the first and only biography you've written. You came to it as a um, a, a, a student, as you said, of Roger Penrose, a very talented physician, uh, physicist, mathematician. What did you, well, certainly more talented than I am. Uh, what, what did you learn about the art of biography, about writing about someone else's life? What surprised you no. as a scientist? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was mad to take it on. I mean, I was, it was crazy, the idea of doing it. And uh, I don't know, I, I wouldn't, if I'd known what was, <laughs> what was involved, I don't think I ever would. Uh, but I, I think there were some things which guided me. Uh, uh, there was a very strong sense of narrative and chronology and of not... One important thing is that to remember that at any particular time, no one knew what was going to happen later. And that storytelling should reflect that. And people, you know, that every, every development is a surprise to the people who are in it. And I, so that gave it a sort of immediacy, which I think was, was a good thing. Another thing that was very helpful, you know, the, my book is actually has a structure, which is the first part's called the logical and the second part's called the physical. And computer science is about bringing logical ideas together with the physical implementation. But also, I mean, that's what think, thinking and doing is. There's a culminating sentence I write at some point where I say, thinking and doing, the logical and the physical, it was the problem of his theory and the problem of his life. That alludes to what I was saying about language earlier, but also is a guiding principle for thinking about his life, that there's an interior world which is in, cannot be seen, but which one's trying to penetrate from the outside. And then there's the world of actions, which to some extent can be recorded and, and described. And the job is to bring those together. Also very aware that my language was also acting in a way. It's certainly putting forward a, a, a view and creating things for the readers. I was very aware of that. Uh, I think all these things, you know, they, they, they did impinge on me. The experience of meeting so many people, of course, was absolutely crucial. And one thing I'd like to end on, really, is that uh, it wouldn't have been possible without Alan Turing himself. He didn't leave much in the way of diaries, notes, letters or journals or anything like that, which is a shame. Maybe he wish he'd written much more. But he left a tremendous legacy in the minds of everyone who, who knew him. Uh, and his friends in particular, especially those who were aware of his, his, his inner, more aware of his inner self, not just as a, a science figure. And that created a, a goodwill, which I was able to, 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 uh, uh, to ride on, I mean, to, to make use of. And uh, once I sort of established what I was doing, 
So it was really thanks to him. There was a lot of people who felt there was really something ought to be said about this, about what had happened and how... Uh, this was true more generally anyway, because the whole Bletchley Park thing had been kept secret and a lot of people felt it should be noised abroad and how what, what an amazing feat it was. But there was something quite personal about it too, about Turing, which uh, I was able to pl plug into and hope that it comes across in the writing without too much of me and, and more. Right. Well, and I more, think you, yeah. you may regret it, Andrew, but I don't think anybody else does. You're, it's, a, it's a massively important book and a remarkable achievement. Alan Turing, The Enigma, the book that, in, uh, the, at least according to Princeton, the book that inspired the film, The Imitation Game, although we're not going to talk about that. Um, congratulations on the book. Uh, it's, it's a classic, um, marvellous achievement and a particularly important book about uh, one of the great men of the 20th century. Uh, Alan, what else? A any other? I mean, your book was written, what, 30 yeah. years ago now, more than 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, what, what else have you been reading recently? Any other books that have caught your fancy that you've enjoyed that you might suggest to our audience? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I put a, I was asked a similar question by shepherdbooks.com and I made a little list of books which I called Widening Your View of Alan Turing's World. So um, I've got one we've already alluded to, uh, which is a book about Maynard Keynes. Yes. Uh, and that's a, it's not written in the same way as mine, but it has a lot of interleaving features, which are nice. There's a, there's a story in it of how Keynes uh, interviewed Turing in 1935 and, and admired his fingernails, which is quite, a, quite an extraordinary thing. It gives you a little insight into that inner world in which, in which Turing lived. But of course, they, they both lived in this, had this private world, but had big public persona in different, in, in really quite different ways, but a very, very curious uh, uh, constellation uh, in this. Yeah, where would we be life. without Keynesian economics and Alan, Alan Turing's machine? I, God knows. Well, that's right. There is, you can draw a sort of, a sort of a very, very rough parallel. I mean, Keynes was a slightly older figure, so they're not exactly parallels. And another, oh, another book is another very good book about Alan Turing, uh, called Alan Turing's Manchester, which is written by a guy who's a great expert on Turing's mathematical biology, which is something we haven't mentioned at all, but actually the thing which was taking up all his uh, work time to speak of in this last few years. Uh, and that I recommend. And also the critique of AI from an ethical point of view or social or political point of view, this is all, many people have written about this, but I just happen to be to recommend this this book. Yeah, Cathy um, O'Neill, particularly in terms you of probably know um, all about, and yeah. a number of people have been writing on similar themes about the dangers of algorithms. Algorithms aren't getting a very good press at the moment, uh, so I don't know what Turing would have thought about that. But I, uh, there we are. It's, it's open to all of you to form an opinion. This is this is what it's all about. Yeah.